0: So think about this, if you were designing a Life is Good t-shirt, what would you put on the front? That stick figure, his name is Jake. What would Jake be doing on the front of your Life is Good t-shirt? And Really that question is to get at what would be your picture of the good life? As the good shepherd, Jesus came and he said, I have come that my sheep may have life. And have life abundantly. But what if Christ's picture of the good life actually included suffering? What if the way our world views the good life, an abundant life in Christ, then with what our flesh longs for, what if those actually looked a little bit different than what we might expect? We're going to open up to Luke chapter 6, where Jesus... He takes our idea of the good life and he flips it upside down. So let's open up to Luke chapter 6. It says Christ's sermon is concise, it's targeted, and it's very blunt. To follow Jesus means you can't just have a theology that's all theory, but your theology, what we believe about God, has to shape every area of our lives. So before I read, let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask you to open our hearts now to hear from your word. Move in us by your spirit that we might respond with worship and obedience. Lord, we ask that you would plant your word so deep in our hearts that it would take root and bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Luke chapter 6, we're going to focus on verses 20 to 26. But for a little bit of context, let's start in verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Skip down to 17. And he came down with them... And he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich now, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thanks be to God for his word. May it as we prayed, take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. So our pastor today challenges us to do what does not come naturally. And what that is is to lift our eyes from the immediate and set them on the eternal. We see here in Luke 6 uh, a list of four blessings and four woes. Two parallel sections, two contrasting ways of life. But Jesus seems to be challenging us. He seems to be celebrating the very things you and I generally want to escape and condemning the things that we want. As Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God, he introduces an economy that you might not expect, an economy where the first shall be last, the humble shall be exalted, and to be a leader actually means to be a servant. It means embracing a whole reversal of values, And so from this passage, I'd like to point out three things that uh, we can learn from this passage. You can mark it out on your outline there. Jesus offers hope to those who suffer. He gives a warning to those who prosper. And in all of this, he gives a call to have an eternal kingdom perspective. So first off, Jesus offers hope to those who suffer in this life. As we read, you saw in the context, his target audience are his disciples, So first, that means the twelve. But also, probably that middle group, if you caught the three groups, the middle group are kind of some lowercase d disciples. But there's a fringe group here as well. A great crowd that's drawn to Jesus because of his miracles. They're trying to figure out if it's worth it to leave everything and follow Christ. The first three blessings here deal with real, tangible needs, but they also have a spiritual sense by the follow-up phrase to the sentence. The word blessed means more than just getting something good, it's a broad existence of abundant well-being and overflowing satisfaction. To be blessed means to be in a desirable state of life. So it's shocking. It's shocking when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Hungry and weeping and rejected. Blessed are you. We say, wait a second, Jesus, did you just say what I thought you said? What do you mean I'm blessed if I'm poor and hungry and grieving? How could could it be that those of us who suffer could be considered blessed? And so Jesus has to reorient our whole worldview. So let's look at the second part of each of those statements. The first one, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. So think about it. Who is it that possesses the kingdom of God? Well, it's believers. It's Christians. He's talking about believers, but then look at the time frame. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. So there's something different about this future state of believers who currently experience suffering. And the next verses make it very clear, verse 22. Blessed are you and people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil. Not for any reason, but on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for your reward is great, where? In heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. So there's this Future heavenly reality of the kingdom of God. That's the foundation for what Jesus says is the good life or the blessed life. So even as he points us ahead, he also says, blessed are you now? Yours is the kingdom of God. So what does it mean then for us to be poor, hungry, and needy? Jesus isn't just saying that all of those who are materially poor get an automatic pass to heaven. That's not what he's saying. There's something more going on here. And he's also not just blessing poverty in and of itself. Deuteronomy 28 says that poverty is actually, it can be a curse for disobedience. So we have to consider that there's both a literal and a spiritual sense to this idea of being poor. First, literal. Many in his audience were experiencing real literal poverty, uh, hunger, grief, and rejection. These people are especially drawn to Christ because they know they need him. They know they have great need, and they're looking to Christ as the one who can help them. And Jesus, time and time again, has great compassion on those who have great physical need. But Christ's mission is actually much greater, it's much greater than just meeting these earthly physical needs. So often people wanted him to stick around and keep performing miracles, but Jesus says, I got to keep moving. So look back uh, just a couple of chapters to Luke four, should have kept my Bible open. And looking at at verse 18, he's in his hometown synagogue and he's invited to, to read scripture and to teach on it. And so he opens up to Isaiah 61 and this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Skip down to 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So, according to that, Jesus' own self declaration, a central aspect of his mission was to proclaim. The good news of the kingdom of God. So in Christ's coming, he says the kingdom of God has come. But the miracles and the healings were not the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Not the ultimate fulfillment of the good news. What the, the purpose of the miracles was to do is to testify to the truth of the good news of the kingdom of God. To demonstrate the compassionate heart of God. But they were never meant to be the end of the kingdom of God. Because in God's eternal plan, the kingdom of God had not yet come in its fullness. Um, if you look at Matthew 13, there's parables of the kingdom of God, and they reveal the progressive nature of the kingdom of God unfolding. That's why Jesus casts our eyes out towards a future hope. It'll be a time where there will be no more weeping, a time where death will be no more, a time of great reward for the inhabitants of the kingdom of God. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, you can be sure there will be unmatched physical blessing. But Jesus says, hang on and rejoice. What you see now is just a down payment. Wait till you see what I've got in store for you. But there's also a spiritual sense. If you look at the second half of those Phrases. He really turns our attention to the spiritual reality going on. When we compare our present reality to the promises of eternal glory, then there's no comparison. We see just how overwhelmingly dwarfed our earthly experiences are by the overwhelming riches of heaven. It doesn't matter what state of life we're in. If we're honest, when we live in a fallen world, when... We have fallen bodies. Even believers still wrestle with sin. Whether we're rich or poor, if we truly take account of ourselves before the Lord and we see how grievous our sin is, then we should join David in Psalm 40. And he says, For I am poor and needy. King David, poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. Because the hope that Jesus holds out is for you who see your spiritual poverty, who mourn over your sin and look to Christ as your only hope. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that inheritance is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, because we're all beggars in need of Christ. So Jesus gives us great hope to those who suffer because suffering in this life is only temporary. Not only that, what's interesting is he seems to suggest that our grieving and mourning actually enhance our kingdom living in the here and now. It deepens our hope and our expectation of future glory. Paul would, would, uh, would correlate to this as well in some of his letters. Romans 5, 3-5 says this, We rejoice in our sufferings Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's given to us. He says again, 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When Emily and I were meeting with an attorney to draw up kind of our living wills, uh, he asked us how we wanted our assets distributed to our children. Uh, If something were to happen to us, he said some people decide to allocate some for when the kids turn 18, maybe some more when they turn 25 and even more at age 30. Kind of this progressive unfolding of your inheritance. Imagine if you had an inheritance like that. Imagine if you could look out and you saw a day in the future when you would wake up, you would draw in your first breath and you would realize that today is the day. This is the day when the promised assets become yours. Now, they'd always have been yours, but now you get to experience them in a new way that you've never experienced. Well, if you are in Christ, you have such an account. You have that account. The Holy Spirit is described as our down payment to the inheritance that we will have. There's much, much more to come. Do you think about that? Do you read the passages in Scripture that cast our mind to eternity for that eternal inheritance that we have? Do you dwell on what's coming to help you deal with the troubles of today? So be comforted by the blessing of Christ now and those yet to come. So point two, Jesus' teaching here is also a warning to those who prosper in this life. So he continues, uh, Luke 6, verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false Prophets. If we went back and studied some of the prophets of the Old Testament, you would see that the true prophets of God, as they faithfully communicated God's word to his people, they weren't always treated so well. They were rejected, excluded, beat down. They didn't have a good reputation with, with the masses, but they were faithfully proclaiming God's word. And on the flip side, false prophets, what did they have? Well, they had status. They had reputation. They knew how to tickle the ears of their hearers to be received. But they're false prophets because they were compromising on the word of God. So these are strong statements. We should let those words sink in. Woe to you who are rich, full, who laugh, and are spoken well of. There's a tension here. There's a tension when we talk about prospering and suffering in this life. We can't simply say that the possession of wealth or the abundance of food and comfort or being happy and well thought of is wrong in and of itself. We can be materialistic in plenty or in want. And the Bible does call us to work hard. The Bible calls us to provide for ourselves and others. Abraham and Job were rich. David and Paul rejoiced greatly. Church officers are supposed to have a good reputation. But the key is following Lydia's example in Acts 16. When she's converted, she uses her wealth as a means to spur on gospel workers for God's glory and for the good of the church. So Jesus isn't talking about just all rich people here. But John Calvin, as he comments on this passage, he says... Jesus is talking about those who are so completely occupied with their worldly possessions that they forget the life to come. And if we're honest, your heart and my heart are so easily tempted towards worldly living. It tickles our hearts. So one big danger of earthly prosperity that we should hear from Jesus here is the temptation to love that prosperity more Than God himself. So we've got to be honest and proactive about these temptations, the unique temptations that come along with wealth and comfort. Calvin again says, we are so prone to be intoxicated by prosperity, ensnared by flattery, and on this account, the children of God often envy the reprobate when they see everything go on prosperously and smoothly with them. So Jesus rebukes those who look for their comfort, contentment, and ultimate joy in the things of this life. They may experience great earthly prosperity, but without Christ they'll experience great spiritual and eternal bankruptcy. Because the word woe here captures a sense of long-lasting pain and displeasure. The truth is that the provisions of this life are never meant to be Ultimate, but they're meant to point us towards the giver of all good things. So, you may want me to say, okay, how much prosperity is okay? You may want me to throw out a number. You may want me to describe some thresholds. But I can't do that. I can't do that when we consider both the physical and spiritual interwovenness of Christ's teaching and of the greater teaching of the Bible. What we see is that what we're really dealing with here, first and foremost, is a heart problem. It's a heart problem that that manifests itself in the way we live our lives. And Jesus says, I want every part of your life. So we gotta check our hearts. And when we check our hearts, we're dealing with idols, we're dealing with an idolatry problem. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, some of you have read, Uh, we got it in our bookstore. He has these two diagnostic questions that are helpful in kind of uncovering some idols in our lives. He says this, consider these statements, life only has meaning if, fill in the blank, I only have worth if, and then you fill in the blank. So take just a few minutes to think about that. How would you fill in the blanks? Life only has meaning if, if I have a family structure the way I've planned it, if I have long-term job satisfaction, if my career doesn't implode upon me, maybe if my children don't walk away from the faith, what is it for you? Or you look at the second statement and you say, I only have worth if I have a certain Income status or reputation status. We can just as much envy and lust after that as we can do with physical pleasures. So, what is it for you? Are you seeking to live that you would leave such a lasting legacy here that it it leads you away and it crowds out the voice of God in your life and when you think about eternity? Whatever we fill in that blank with, if it's not related to our identity in Christ, then that's an idol. Now, a lot of those things that I gave as examples are actually really good things. And the Bible calls us to pursue a lot of those things. But the key point is, our identity in Christ comes first. Our riches in Christ comes first. And our earthly prosperity flows out of our riches in Christ. And the things that we pursue are shaped by the riches we have in Christ. Uh, just to think about one, one big idol, I think, that we have in our society, and I am prone to worship it myself. A few days I was sitting at a red light, and I saw this heating and air truck go by. And this is what it said on the side: Heating and air for all your comfort needs. Comfort. I get it. It's a joke. It's a play on words. We don't have to be too critical of it. But it does get at this heart idol that we have that manifests itself in our real life. Comfort. Possibly one of the biggest idols of our world. And comfort's a good thing. We have a ministry of comfort in Christ to one another. The Holy Spirit is described as our comforter. But how short-sighted we can be when we spend so much of our earthly prosperity and time... And toiling, spent, and striving for a comfortable life in the here and now, and less on the things with eternal significance. So here's a danger to look out for. Prosperity, if we're not on guard, can threaten our sense of a need for a Savior. A lot of the people that were coming to Jesus had a real potent sense of their need for help, and the people who Less had that physical need, were a little bit less likely to come to him. But those who, regardless of their state, came to Christ, he had great compassion upon them. So it threatens our sense of a need for a Savior because we begin to rely on our bank accounts, on our reputation, on our job performance, or our physical shape, which is just another way of saying we begin to rely on ourselves. And self sufficiency is not the gospel. Jesus says one chapter earlier in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And if we saw our sin as ugly and grievous and detestable and cancerous as it really is, then we would all bend our knees in humble desperation before the Lord. Um, in that same book, Keller describes a, the story of, uh, in the 1830s, a French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, I have no idea how to do a French accent, came to America, and this is what he did. He, he came to America, and he saw what he described as a strange melancholy that haunts the people in the midst of such great abundance. you think that maybe abundance would be the antidote against melancholy. But summarizing what he said, he said the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. The joys of this world, defined in human terms, are truly incomplete. That's why the Bible talks about what in the kingdom of God? What kind of joy? Fullness of joy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In John 15, 11, Jesus comes and he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy, perhaps the most joyful person who has ever lived, my joy may be in you, which would make your joy full. So the real problem With living for earthly prosperity is not fundamentally indulging in too much. The real problem with living for earthly prosperity is that we're settling for too little. When Christ offers us riches beyond all comparison, when He says, Come to my house, I've got countless rooms, I've got a family with generations deep and wide. And I've got comforts that I can offer you that will never break down. They will never need to be updated. Even though our software has to be updated every month, the comforts of heaven never get stale. So let's look to heaven. The summary of this whole passage is the third point here. That Jesus calls us to have an eternal kingdom perspective that influences the way we live now. And this is a statement that I've been praying for my life for the last eight years. Something that the Lord impressed upon me in a devotional time before Him in the Word. And it's this phrase, God help me to live for and in light of the eternal kingdom of God. Help me to live for the eternal kingdom of God, but also to live in light of it now. Because Jesus sets out two ways to live a wholehearted commitment to the kingdom of God and all the hardships that that may bring, or you can pursue the world in the here and now. And the only lens through which these blessings and these woes make any sense is through an eternal perspective. So thinking eternally is kind of like being in one of those corn mazes you can't see above, and you're wandering through, and you feel lost, and then you come across a ladder or a watchtower, and you, and you climb up it, and you stand up, and you can see the whole maze out there before you, and it makes sense. Or thinking eternally is also like being up so close to a mosaic painting where each individual piece kind of has its own design, and it's hard to make sense of it, but when you step back, you see the beautiful artwork. It all makes sense. Now, thinking eternally may not give us all the answers to all the questions that we have. But if we keep the, kingdom of, keep the kingdom of God before us, it can give us peace and comfort in this life, even if our circumstances might suggest otherwise. So, in one sense, the use of the word shall in this passage in Luke 6, it points to a future reality. A future reality with a broad picture makes sense in God's perspective. But he also says in verse 20 that yours is the kingdom of God now. So you may, if you've heard a phrase, there's an already and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. So that means if you're in Christ, yours is the kingdom now. If the joys of this world are incomplete, then our ultimate hope lies in the joys of heaven. So living for and in light of an eternal kingdom fuels your earthly mindsets in the here and now. So what does this do? It means we don't lay up treasures here on earth. Luke 12, a few chapters later, Jesus says, he says, "'Fear not, little flock, "'for it is your Father's good pleasure "'to give you the kingdom.'" He doesn't do this reluctantly. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. "'So sell your possessions and give to the needy. "'Provide yourselves with money bags "'that do not grow old.'" With treasures in heaven that do not fail. When no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So, when we read the broad scriptures as a whole, it's really hard to miss this general economic principle of the kingdom of God. It's not about storing up wealth for ourselves here. Put wealth for ourselves there. It's a testing of the limits to how much we can give away here with the reward held out there. Having an eternal perspective means that some level of persecution will come. We haven't talked about this as much yet, but in the fourth blessing and the fourth woe, Jesus talks about persecution. He pronounces blessing on those who are persecuted because of him. So this is more than just being picked last on the playground. It's being left out, avoided, rejected, excluded, slandered on Facebook, beat down, maybe even thrown in prison or much worse. And not for any reason, but for because of your faith in Jesus. So there's a Christ-centeredness to this kind of suffering. If you're faithful to Jesus, if you don't shy away from proclaiming the truth of his word, then sooner or later you will experience persecution. It may be in small ways, it may be in large ways. It's people all over the world, and we can't forget, people all over the world give up their lives every day simply for bearing the name of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 holds this out as a guaranteed Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Many of us haven't really faced severe opposition like that. Maybe you know somebody who has, but maybe for us here in Anderson, maybe it's more like experiencing pressure pressure from our employers, pressure from our coworkers, our friends, our relatives. Pressure to compromise on the word of God. Or, maybe if the cultural trends that we've seen in the last few decades continue, you might actually just have that opportunity to suffer for Jesus' name. You might have that, as the scriptures call, that privilege to be persecuted on account of Jesus. The apostles in Acts 5, they're proclaiming the word of God. They're beat up. They're let to go, and what do they do? They run off leaping for joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. See, Jesus continues to reorient our whole world view. But the fourth woe is woe to those who value the opinion of man over the word of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are dead set against each other. So if no one ever disagrees with you, are you talking about Christ in your daily life? Is Christ influencing the way you live, what you say, and what you do? We're not trying to create enemies here, but are you inviting people to taste and to see the goodness of God and not compromising on the truth? If so, then there will be pushback. Peter who failed at this three times, says later in his letter, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Following Christ means denying the world. It doesn't mean cutting yourself off from it. Paul rebuked the Thessalonians for trying to do that. But it does mean living in the world and not of the world. That's Jesus' prayer for us. It's not a vow to poverty. It's not self-harm. Jesus doesn't call us to those things specifically, but he does say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Being a disciple of Christ means you're going to have to give up something. What is that for you? It may look differently for each of us. I was talking with a neighbor yesterday who, um, he's from Australia, so that's kind of a fun thing. Uh, Good guy. And when he was younger, he's super tall. When he was younger, he was training to be a professional Australian rules football player. And you don't want to mess with those guys. And he came to a point in his life where he was having some injuries, he was having some good success. It was gonna be the year that he was going to make it. And then Christ got a hold of his life. He became a Christian. And the number one thing the Lord impressed upon him was, are you gonna be willing to lay this down to be my disciple? And for him, that meant leaving that dream and becoming a pastor. He's been a pastor here in Anderson for seven years, and now he's planning to plant a church. So for him, that had a real cost. And again, it's going to look differently for each of us, but what does it look like for you to take up your own cross, to deny yourself and follow Christ? The principle is it means giving up your own agenda and saying, God, how can I make every decision for you? I loved how David put that last week. Coming to Christ isn't just a one-time decision. It's making every decision for him. Jim Elliott was a martyr who was killed for taking the gospel to the lost, and he said this, you may have heard this quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So maybe you're here today and you're sensing that your desires and decisions have been set on this earthly road to prosperity Maybe it's happening in such a way that it crowds out the voice of God in your life. Well, it's never too late to turn and fix your eyes on him and to say, God, reorient my life, redirect my life that I may have Christ. Because one day, as, as Christ puts our eyes on the eternal, physical pain and suffering will be no more. All bank accounts will be zeroed out The earth as we know it will fade away and the kingdom of God will be presented to us in its fullness. The dwelling place of God will be with man, as Revelation 21 puts it. The blessings will become clear for Christians and in stark contrast also the woes for those who had put their hope in this life. But Jesus offers life, eternal life, a forever home. To those who would put their trust in him for salvation, he wants to take the curses of your woes and shower you with the blessings of his life. Because as we look at that list, Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus denied himself the comforts of this world so that you might overflow with the comforts, comforts of heaven. Jesus became the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, that you might have the fullness of his joy. And Jesus was despised and rejected by men, that you might be accepted by God. So in Jesus, we have life in abundance. What is your heart set on? What are your eyes looking at, looking for? What is your mind dwelling on? What are you living for? Find rest, my soul, in God alone amidst the world's temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your kingdom. That there are real benefits in the here and now for those who are possessors and residents of this kingdom. Your kingdom stands forever, so help us to hope in this life for the life to come. Let us not trade the fading pleasures of this world for the unfading riches of heaven. Lord, by your grace, would you help us to hold this life loosely enough that we would be living for and in light of eternity and tightly enough that we would be your faithful disciples.